0: Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Uh, We ask that you please take a moment to turn off your cell phones uh, uh, for the duration of this event. Our speaker today is Mr. Michael Maybach. Uh, He is a seasoned professional in global business diplomacy. Today, he serves on several nonprofit boards, including the Witherspoon Institute, the James Wilson Institute, and the IWP Board of Advisors. He's a 2014 IWP graduate. In 1983, Mr. Maybach was hired by the founders of the Intel Corporation. His first role at Intel was to serve as uh, personal assistant to one of Intel's co-founders, Dr. Robert Noyce. While assisting Dr. Noyce, Mr. Maybach created Intel's Government Affairs Department, opening offices in Washington, Brussels, and Beijing. He built a global team of over 150 professionals engaged with government officials about key commercial policies, and in 1996 he was named Intel's first Vice President of Global Government Affairs. Among his many activities, Mr. Maybach testified before the U.S. Congress on 17 occasions on issues such as tax, trade, and technology. He left Intel in 2001 after the company's founders had departed. Today Mr. Maybach will share the key principles that guided Intel's business diplomacy during his 18 years at the firm and he'll share a few stories about his experiences inside Intel, as well as within the government. Then at the conclusion of his talk, Mr. Maybach will welcome your questions. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Maybach.
2: Thank you, and welcome. Thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. I love coming back to IWP, and I recommend it for those that want to go to graduate school here or have friends that want to advance their studies. what we're going to do today is uh, deliver what would be a, a, a lecture I developed for a college class at Bradley University and then in uh, a think tank up at Harvard earlier this year. So it's, uh, it's about 50 minutes in length, so it's a, it's a, a lecture, it's not, not um, shorter, and we'll um, have about 30, 40 minutes for questions, but, but if there's something burning you want to ask in the middle of this, you're welcome to do so. I give some overview thoughts and then I have 10 stories you and everybody likes stories. So with that we're going to get started. At, in my career I worked at Caterpillar for seven years and Intel for 18, Siebel for six months, which is a I have a whole lecture just on that experience. And then uh, 10 years as president of the European American Business Council. Uh, but for today we're just going to look at Intel. Now the t- term uh, lobbyist is um, debated a bit. It's like why is Indiana a Hoosier State? Um, But some people say it's because in Westminster Palace in the 19th century, the members of Parliament and members of House of Lords the peers would meet in the uh, lobby before and after parliamentary sessions and lobby each other, if you will, in a lobby. Others would say it was started because U.S. Grant used to have a drink after work across the street from the White House at the lobby of the Willard Hotel. As you know, in those days, uh, hotels always had a bar. And uh, he used to drink there, but he stopped drinking, and his friend asked him why he do not come by, and he didn't stop drinking, he stopped drinking there. And a friend asked him why he stopped coming to the, to the lobby, and he said because of all the lobbyists, because the railroad and steel interests had found out that he hung out there, and so they were lobbying him all the time. There you go. Now, at Intel, we had a public policy style, and one of my colleagues used to work with me. It's here today, so he can attest to some of this stuff. And uh, I just had one rule of ethical training for my staff, and that is don't say or do anything that you wouldn't want to see on the front page of the newspaper that Andy Grove would read, which is one of our CEOs. So um, that was our ethics training. We had a mindset. Uh, When I first got to Intel my first week, Dick Boucher, one of our vice presidents, sat down with me, a wonderful man. He's, He's retired in Monterey, California now. He said, now, you're opening our government affairs department, and, um, but we don't want you to become a Washingtonian kind of operator. In other words, one of them. We want you to consider this to be missionary work. We want you to be in, be in Washington, but not a part of Washington. The whole idea is not to take people golfing, in those days you could, and to the theater and, and be a la-di-da. The whole thing is to get things done for the Intel Corporation for Industry. Our mindset was to engender a results orientation, to get things accomplished. Always focus on on doing things that were purposeful as opposed to activity. And Intel, we didn't like activity, we liked purpose. Our focus was always on things that affected Intel or our industry or our host communities. So you find today in Silicon Valley, lots of CEOs to my Chagrin, I guess I'd say. They have opinions about all kinds of things. Now, at Intel, we didn't have opinions on the Panama Canal or, or um, all kinds of social issues that, that now they do. We just talked about our technology, our products, our customers. Everything else was somebody else's business. Uh, our focus was on policies of maximum return. We wanted to do a few things, do them well, and to do them with high impact. So let's get into the Japanese semiconductor market, which was completely closed, um, because it's the second largest market in the world for semiconductors. And then later on, how do you get China and the WTO and get them to follow rules, which they still don't follow, but we did get them into the WTO for better or for worse. Credibility, we always based uh, Intel and industry uh, expertise and in technology expertise on, um, as the basis of our arguments. Not our opinions, but how things work in the real world. People that started Intel and, and ran the company actually made things and they had to work. Matter of fact, the hardest thing and the most expensive thing in the world to make is a computer chip. It costs about $5 billion per factory. So It's very hard to make one speck of dust on a piece, uh, person on a chip would, um, would um, uh, render the chip unusable and so They're very meticulous about um, results and uh, high impact results. On messaging, we would try to use line managers as content experts, so if we had a tax issue, we'd want our vice president of tax to testify and not be not all the time. I had my own uh, lobby laws that are sort of similar. I'll just mention them, always tell the truth, always. That way you don't have to remember what you said, right? <laughs> always tell both sides, this is very important. Very important issue that people will maybe not pay attention to as much as I like them to. When you see a member of Congress or anybody in, in government or any walk of life, you tell them both sides. You say, we're for this and here's why. And the other side, and we respect them, is for this and here's why. Here's their best argument and here's our answer. It does a few things. One, it shows that you're not afraid of the other side. Number two, it shows, hello John, that you're very confident of yourself, but number three, it also um, treats them with respect in terms of um, making sure they they don't feel they don't have both sides. Um, Also, when the other side comes in, they won't do this very often, but you've already answered their best arguments with yours, and that will be in mine, so this is a very wise thing to do. Be respectful and gracious, of course, uh, the front page test I told you about, which is, my ethics test was don't do anything you don't want on the front page of the newspaper. Uh, never threaten, but always make clear what's at stake. Senator, if this if, if this market isn't open, we probably have 300 people that can't have their jobs in Oregon anymore, because that's where we make the product, and they can't sell it to that country. We had problems like that. One company is a special interest, three companies are an industry. So. If I'm from Ford and I go in to see the U.S. Senator from Michigan, as soon as I leave, he's going to say to his staff or she, call Chrysler and GM and find out what they think about this issue, right? So, the smart lobbyists will take their competitors into the office with them so that the congressman or senator already knows what the whole sector, at least, believes. And so, lobby with your competitors. It shows uh, you have goodwill for all and reflects confidence, maturity, and collegiality, and it actually does part of the work of democracy. Members of Congress have to figure out what what do the unions want, what do consumers want, what do foreign countries want, what do the companies want, on and on. They've got to aggregate all of that into yes or no on legislation or amendments, etc. And the more you can show a unified industry as opposed to a disaggregated industry, the more that you have done part of the work of democracy for them, and that's very valuable. And Finally, I always like to tell my employees, talk about the country, not our company, please. Nobody dies for the company, they die for the country, right? People don't run for Congress because they want to help Intel. That's not their slogan. They run for Congress, they want to help the United States of America. It helps our company, you say it helps our company, but I'm here to talk about why this is good for our country. Okay. So the hard work of lobbying, Uh, I think the best way to think about it is uh, that for every hour you listen to a symphony orchestra, think about how many hours they rehearse. Uh, I used to tell people that when I was at Intel, I spent about 25% of my time in company meetings and 25% of my time talking to people in government. The other 50, of course, was golf or tennis, depends on the. Time of year. Actually, the other 50% of the time we're in trade association meetings. I mean, all day, every day, you go from this one to this one, US Chamber to NAM to the Semiconductor Industry Association, on and on and on, depends on the issues, etc., and the associations. But that's where the hard work of lobbying gets done, because that's where one company becomes 10 companies, 20, 40, 60, whatever the number is. And then finally, when the companies get before government, you've already rehearsed. Who is going to say what? What are the messages? Who are the key people we're going to see? What what CEO is going to testify? Who's going to do the ad campaign? Whatever is involved in the campaign, you really want to have all that laid out. And so your colleagues around the table get to know each other. So your best friends are all your customers and competitive um, members of the industry. So industry was started in July of 1968 started by four men. Uh, On the left, Les Vedez, Les left Hungary at night, walked out of Hungary 56, 1956, to escape the communists and into Austria and got to the United States and eventually to Intel. And the picture of the three men, the one with the mustache, Andy Grove, who died two years ago, a wonderful man. He also escaped from across the same field into Austria, Got to New York City with the clothes on his back and 20 bucks in his pocket. Got a bachelor's degree at at City College of New York, got a PhD in chemical engineering at Berkeley in California, and uh, then the two co-founders of Intel, Robert Noyce in the middle there, was the inventor of the integrated circuit. So we had the the vacuum tube, and then in the 40s, 1947, the uh, Bell Labs, three men, uh, invented the transistor. So you went uh, from the... Hot glass, fragile. Uh, one switch inside of the glass tube to one s- switch inside of the solid state. That's where the transistor uh, became the solid state, and therefore it could be in a satellite or in a transistor radio because of that. And then the integrated circuit was actually many many switches on a substrate, which was noise chose uh, silicon, and that was the s- secret. And that's why they called it Silicon Valley and not germanium Valley or Vinyl Valley or something. And uh, I was his assistant for four years. When I got hired by Intel, they made me his assistant. Uh, so it's a very lucky thing. And I could tell you a lot of stories about Bob, but I won't here today. And then Gordon Moore on the far right, brilliant guy as well, PhD. Uh, and he uh, is the father of Moore's law, which is still existing today. He is he, he, he created it because he had to give a speech to a bunch of semiconductor executives and told them that every two years... Uh, chips double in their capacity, and now it's every 18 months, but he didn't think he was creating a, a law in 1970. He just gave a speech and it became Moore's law. And then down here, Federico Faggin, he was one of the three or four men that invented the microprocessor, the computer on a chip. There it is right there, the 4004. Became the 8008. These are all engineers, right? So it's not the Chevy Impala or something, it's the 4004. And it became the 8086, and then the 186, 286, 386, and then because AMD kept making the same number, we couldn't copyright a number. It became the Pentium for five, 586, and that's what they use today. And then Art Rock um, in 1968 was a venture capitalist, a young man at the time. He assembled $2.5 million, and that's how Intel was started. One person, two and a half million bucks. Hello, Eagles. And they have now 100,000 employees from these four men, $100,000. So if you ever asked, how is wealth created? It's a few people assembling on a voluntary basis to use their capital, which is head in Latin, right, capital, to serve others. That's it. This is how wealth is created. What they do here in Washington is they transfer it, right? But this is how it's created. So those are some pretty impressive people there. Now, we're going to talk about 10 stories, and here's number one. So I got to the industry in November 14th of 83, and I went to two weeks later in November to Monterey, California, for a meeting of the Public Policy Committee of the Semiconductor Industry Association, and what they did was assign each company uh, uh, lobbyists, and there was only seven or eight of us at the time, uh, a key issue. And since I was the newest guy, they gave me uh, passage of the Semiconductor Chip Protection Act. Well, they had been trying for four years to get this passed and hadn't even gotten a hearing in the Judiciary Committee of the House. And so they gave it to me because the new guy always gets the one that's never going to happen. It's like the worst sales territory, kind of thing, if you're a new salesperson. So I got this uh, assignment, and um, I had no idea uh, why we had problems with it. But it was to the problem was you can't you can't have a patent on a chip design. You can't have a copyright. And yet, if people copy the chip design, you lose the whole company, because you design the chip and then somebody copies it and then you're gone, right? So there's no intellectual property protection at the time, and they feared the whole industry would be copied by some nice person in Brazil or something, who knows? So um stalled in the House Judiciary Committee for four and a half years. I got the assignment. So. A guy named Mike Gadball, one of the trade attorneys uh, from Dewey Valentine and myself, went to see Mike Remington on the top of the beard. He's retired. You can find him probably on Facebook or something. Really nice, smart lawyer. And this is Bob Castemeyer down here. He was a congressman for 25 years from Madison, Wisconsin, center-left Democrat. who was chairing the committee. The Democrats ran the Congress at the time. And so we went to see Mike Remington. I had never met Mike Remington before, and we sat down with him. And I asked him a question, I said, um, uh, I said, Mike, um, now I'm new, and he wasn't delighted to see us, let me put it that way. I mean, he took a meeting, but it wasn't, like, great to see you guys again after four years of begging, you know. And I said, "Um, I'm new, and uh, I'm from the Midwest, so of course it takes me a little while to figure things out, Uh, but, but so is your boss. So give me some advice because whatever we've been doing is not working. Oh my God. He said, you know, for four years, your colleagues from Silicon Valley have come in here and demanded hearings and all this. No one's ever asked my advice. You have a problem, Mr. Maybach. The copyright people don't want computer chips to be copyrighted because no, they have music and essays poetry and stuff. They don't want to have your industrial products. And the patent people say, well, it's not really a functioning device in the sense of moving parts and stuff, because it's not, just electrons. He said, so I think you should do a sui generis bill. Now I'm not either Italian or an attorney, but this means unique, right? Try a sui generis legislation. So I wrote that down. I didn't know how to spell it, but I kind of wrote it down. And then I left my attorney, I said, what does that mean? He says You know sort of a hybrid kind of unique thing so and then he told us on the way out just to cheer us up he said and by the way this is not a priority for the chairman and in Washington what that means is we're not going to help you at all do something else with your life that's kind of what that message is because they're so polite here okay so by the end of our work mr. Kessmeyer is the lead sponsor of our legislation now, how do we go from X to Z here? So, first of all, we visited over 200 members of Congress in the U.S. House. I did 100 of those myself, 104. And We gave them a copy of this magazine, which had just come out that year, a computer chip in the middle of someone's hand. Now, if National Geographic thinks it's important, maybe it was. Nobody knew what a computer chip was. One of the things I did was I got a whole bunch of computer chips that were bad chips, so they'd keep them in a box somewhere. And I scotch-taped them with that, that tape that you can see through, you know, that I was called the expensive stuff, you know. And I had all these 3x5 cars, and all I had was a computer chip on it. And I visited a congressman. I said, Have you ever seen a computer chip? Nobody had ever seen one. I said, here's a X86. is an 86 uh, microprocessor. And I would just leave those behind. So, so we all of a sudden people for the first time saw a computer chip, and they see that it's important. And so they started co-sponsoring our bill because it must be important. And I've got one in my briefcase now. And that's kind of how you know if you want to sell a car, let them test drive it, right? So you give them a chip. So we we gave uh, every member of Congress this magazine and its, its computer chip. We convinced uh, every member of the House Judiciary Committee. co-sponsor our bill except for Mr. Castemeyer. we wanted to wait until he was surrounded by all of his members both parties and then easily passed the house because we had 200 co-sponsors including everybody in the committee and Castemeyer then wanted to put his name on the bill because if he was going to be in a parade he wanted to lead it right and so to his credit he helped us then we got through the Senate Judiciary Committee we had two problems Senator Kennedy Uh, didn't want to help industry because he didn't want to help industry because he didn't want to help industry. And that was three questions. And so um, digital equipment is headquartered in Boston. And and a guy named Bruce Holbein was our lobbyist. And I called Bruce and I said, we got a problem. Senator Kennedy, who's a ranking Democrat on the House or the Senate Judiciary Committee, doesn't want to help us with this bill and he wants to slow it down. Will you get a meeting because he refuses to see us? So Bruce called his staff and he said, well, the senator doesn't want to meet with industry because he doesn't like to say he's met with industry, especially if they have bills pending because he doesn't want to be, you know, influenced by industry. So, um, but she said, "Um, but let me see what I can arrange. So Bruce and I, a couple days later, walked into Senator Kennedy's office, and there he is behind the desk, and there she is over in this chair, and in front of her are two chairs. So we walked in and we senator and he didn't get up and he didn't put his hand out and she said gentlemen sit over here and she said so tell me about your bill and so we told her about the bill and then she asked us then she asked us some questions she said just a minute and then she said to the senator senator some members of industry have been here today and here they've got some concerns about legislation they want your help etc and they have a question about whether or not she'd be open to helping it, blah, blah, blah. And then, then he would give her the answer. And then, and then she said, I've talked to the senator today, and here's his thoughts. And without belingering this, this went on for 25 minutes, like this. And then she said, thank you for coming to see us. I'll report all of this to the senator. And then we <laughs> left. And he supported us. Okay, so it's just a story, but it's a true story. The other problem was we got down to the first week of October, and the bill had passed out of the Senate Judiciary, and we had another week to pass the Senate. And if it got past the Senate, it was going to go to the White House. Mr. Reagan who told us he's going to sign it. But the chief counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I will think of his name one of these days, um, said to us, I just don't have time to write the staff report. Because they gotta write a detailed staff report of the history and the you know the, the bill and all this stuff and what the <coughs> committee is doing, because that becomes the legal record of the committee before it goes to vote in the Senate, et cetera. Well, so <laughs> we hired Tom Sussman, who's a retired attorney now from Ropes and Gray in Boston, another Boston connection, who used to be the general counsel of the committee and had that job. And we said to the general counsel, if we get somebody to write it for you and give it to you on a disc, would you consider it? He said, I would. So Tom Sussman wrote the committee report. We gave it to him on a floppy disc on blank white paper. The staffer read it and said, "It's pretty good. And that became the committee report and we got a vote on October 7th, I think it was, and the president signed it. So within 11 months, we got it passed. All right. So the point is, that if you just ask advice, <laughs> you might get somewhere. And then, of course, you have to give out 200 magazines or 365 magazines. Okay, so the President signed him. Okay. Let's talk about Japan here for a few minutes. Um, uh, Miti uh, was formed after the Second World War. This is the Ministry of International Trade and Industry it had been the, the Defense Department of, of Japan. It had been the War Department of Japan. It became the commercial War Department of Japan uh, and Japan was the number two semiconductor market and this was 1983 four five six period that I'm talking about now and they had quite a industrial policy on everything television ships aluminum you name it everything they're just like their flag one everybody around one table no antitrust laws uh, to speak of and um, their industrial policy for semiconductors was very high tariffs. I think it was 20% or something at one point. Um, the domestic market was divided up at meetings, so all the producers of uh, DRAMs or SRAMs or processors or whatever would sit around and divide up the market. You make this, you make that, et cetera. Let's Let's agree on prices. Uh, who are we going to dump chips on? What country next? All this stuff. Um, strict import controls. They had a law, a law. We used to carry around a copy of it with a translation in English. Foreign semiconductors cannot have more than 10% of the, of the Japanese market. So we have export controls here, that import controls. If somebody wanted to buy a foreign semiconductor, they had to submit it to METI and they had to make sure it wasn't over the 10% of the total market. But they would first pass that order around to everybody that made the same product in Japan to see if they could fill it. And they could see the quantity and the price that we were going to charge so they knew not only our pricing and our, and our customers, but they were, in effect, given our customers to this system. So it was impossible to sell there. And, uh, and foreign manufacturing plants weren't allowed. If Intel wanted want to put a plant in, in Japan, sorry, it's illegal. You're not a Japanese company. Now, we think nothing of this over here, but that was their law there. And um, purchases of Japanese companies were illegal as well. You couldn't buy Toshiba if you had all the money in the world. And they had a kuretsu structure, which is, I don't know if you know the kuretsu structure, but it's uh, it's the uh, mishibishi heavy industries, the mishibishi elevators, the cars, et cetera, mishibishi semiconductors. And they, and they had a mishibishi bank, and they had a mishibishi Sogo Shosha, which is a trade company, et cetera. So, so they had a very, I mean, every antitrust law in the United States was broken just as a matter of practice over there, it just was one island, one one economy. And what was happening is, because they were the second largest market in the world and they were dumping lots of products for half the price of the product, et cetera, our market share was going down quickly. That's the yellow thing going south there. And this is the semiconductor equipment, the people that make the materials and equipment to make chips, our foreign market share, our our market share was going uh, down as Japanese. So when when you see these trends, um, you you call a surgeon and say, I I need an operation. Just about then, a guy named Dick Darman was the Deputy Treasury Secretary, some people know his name, and he gave a speech, this was a New York Times uh, article, the Deputy Secretary of Treasury t- today called the nation's biggest business bloated and inefficient. The official, Richard G. Darman, said in a speech to the Japan Society in New York, this is back when everybody was complaining about market access in Japan, he goes to the Japanese to give this speech about all of them. my American companies just can't hack it. Some high-priced private managers, you get the idea here, we pride ourselves on being entrepreneurial risk takers, but many climb to the top of the corporate ladder on the strength of their demeanor, their failure to make uh, observable mistakes. Just completely disrespectful of all industrialists in this country. And about seven minutes after Andy Grove read this article, or seven seconds, he called me up and he said, I'm taking the, the red-eye tonight from San Francisco Airport. I'll land at 6 tomorrow morning. and We're going right to Darman's office. I said, well, now, Andy, I think I need to call and get an appointment. He says, you can try. I'm going to be there in the lobby. Says Andy Grove, Mr. Escape from Hungary. So there he is, there's Darman, there's an airplane. So he got on that flight, so I called Darman's secretary that afternoon and I said, now ma'am, you don't know me, um, but my CEO Andy Grove was kind of famous by then. and Intel and Microsoft were the the Google and Facebook kind of companies, so everybody knew who Intel was. He's going to be landing tomorrow morning and we're going to be in your lobby before 8am and he wants to see Mr. Darman about his speech in New York yesterday. Oh, but he has a very full calendar. He'll have to make an appointment. I said, Ma'am, I'm just telling you, he's going to be there, and he wants to see him. Please tell Mr. Darman. Now, he can tell him no, but he has to think about this. Well, this is highly unusual. I said, I know my CEO is highly unusual, (laughs) but so is the speech. I'll tell him. So we got there about 745 or something through the traffic and stuff. And there she was. I'd never met this woman. There she was. Took us up to see Dick Darman. He's no longer with us. Good guy. Walks into this huge office, bigger than this. The Deputy Secretary of Treasury has a very big office. You could use it for your, I don't know, maybe a billiards match or something. It was very big. And uh, he walked up and tried to shake Groves' hand. Grove immediately went to the chair. Wouldn't shake his hand. Darman sat down in the chair across from him, his leather arms. And he said, where I come from, what I would say about your speech yesterday is that you were conforming with the enemy. And if you'd had the guts to come to Silicon Valley and give that speech, I would think differently of you, sir, but you went to the Japan Society to talk about American executives. I don't golf, I don't play tennis, I don't take long vacations. We work night and day, and we've created a company that's very successful around the world. And Japan's a closed market. But you don't give a flip about that. You don't have any respect for people that actually create things in this country. And I flew all the way here just to tell you how little regard I have for you and how upset I am about your remarks, sir. And Darwin is gripping his chair because I took a lot of the edge off this thing, because I don't have a Hungarian accent. <laughs> <laughs> to which he said, I've never been spoken like this before in my career. To which Grove said, well, it's about time. I've never read such a speech, either. So we're one for one. That's what I came to tell you, sir. Think about it. Come to Silicon Valley if you've got the courage to do so. Got up and walked out. Of course, I have to run after <laughs> We got a taxi, and I took him back to Dulles. He got the next flight. He came for that meeting. That was it. I get back to my office. The phone rings. It's dormant. Now, Dick and I just had met in the morning, and we weren't close friends by then. He said, that was quite a meeting. I said, yeah. And he said, message received. I want you to do a favor for me. I want you to arrange for me to give a speech to the American Electronics Association. So I want to amend my remarks because I know you guys are competitive. And I did. And then I was there in the front row. And I heard the speech. It was very different than the New York speech. And we're going to open markets and all this stuff. And it was just like you know, it was like we had a convert here. And um, then at the end of the speech, he came down and he said, and he had a copy of the speech. He said, "You get this to Dr. Grove." And you tell them, I'm going to work on this. So I sent a copy of the speech to girl, grow. growing very happy. So, so, so we got a trade agreement signed with the Japanese. Now, the trade agreement says we had had a dumping case. We had a 301 case, which is a 301 of the Trade Act of the United States, which is the whole island is unfair. The whole, the whole economy is unfair. Um, we formed a semiconductor industry as Washington group, which I chaired for a dozen years, created a semiconductor congressional support group of about 40 members of Congress that all had plants from, from our industry in their states or their districts. Uh, we, uh, we convinced 160 congressmen to write um, the U.S. trade rep, which was Clayton Yeider on the left, and that's Matt Baldridge, Secretary of Commerce on the right. And... Um, When we had reached about 100 letters, and every time a congressman writes a letter to the U.S. trade rep, somebody on his staff has to write a thoughtful letter back, not a form letter. You send a form letter to a member of Congress, you get a different kind of letter, right? It has to be, dear congressman, you wrote me on such and such a date, and this is the point you raised, and here's what we think about it. It has to be specific. So after about 100 and some letters, Clayton Yatter called Alan Wolf, who was a former U.S. trade rep under Jimmy Carter, who was one of our outside counsel, and he said, "Okay, we got the idea. You can cut off the letters. So, Alan called me and said, okay, he's got a hundred letters I think our message received. I said, let's do 60 more, which we did, because I wanted him really to know how much we cared about getting a trade agreement with Japan, because in Washington, you know, it's sort of, you need a lot of encouragement. Uh, so we got a whole bunch of CEOs often over and over and over again to meet in Washington. I mean, we can do a whole speech just on this. White House met with the president, et cetera, et cetera. Secretary Schultz. Secretary Schultz is a big free trader. I'm sure he hates all the tariff stuff that Mr. Trump is doing right now. We went in, and I was at the meeting. We had a little three-wing binder for him. And when we got to the page that showed US market access, semiconductor access, or market share, in every market in the world, uh, Latin America, Europe, Africa, United States, et cetera. We had 50 to 80% of every market in the world except Japan, 10%. And he was astounded. He really thought, well, you're competitive in your own market, but the Japanese probably beat you in most markets. But instead, only in their own market did they have 90%. Everywhere else, we could knock their socks off. He ripped that up. He folded it up and said, I'm on my way after this meeting to a meeting in the White House. I'm going to show the president. And I think that chart and George Schultz, Mister Free Trader, is the one that got the president to support our trade agreement. So we got a trade agreement, and it says foreign, not just U.S., but foreign companies will have twenty percent of the Japanese market. Now that's a side letter; it's not in the formal agreement. But the reason we put that in is because the Japanese had a law that said ten percent, and we thought if we got to twenty, we could break that monopoly because they have to have enough relationships built up with them, and so. Anyway, we got that trade agreement, and there's the President and Bob Michael, former House member, and, um, but they didn't live up to the trade agreement. Nothing happened for six months, and so we had meetings with the President, with U.S. Senators. U.S. Senators went in to see the President and said, we need to shake this thing up, and so in April of 1987, Mr. Reagan hit the Japanese with $100 million in sanctions. It's the only time since the Second World War there's been U.S. trade sanctions against Japan, to this day. And that was the Time Magazine cover in response to that, which is the U.S. gets tough with Japan. I have that cover framed because we caused that. And as soon as that happened, as soon as the sanctions, I mean the next day, our salespeople from U.S. companies in Japan got calls from all the car companies and computer companies. Come by and show us your semiconductor products. Our government has told us now to start buying from you. And today, the Americans have forty-some percent of that market. So, um, so anyway, I'm not going to go through a lot of this because I'm going to run out of time. The next thing we wanted to do was a. Uh, an offense, the defense is to open the markets and to stop the dumping. But we wanted to do something here. Uh, the um, We lost the DMRAM industry and a lot of the EEPROM industry, which is the memory, memory industry. We had done the case, we got gotten the agreement. So these are all the defense. We got the sanctions. Uh, but the offense was to get 14 semiconductor companies, 100 million a year from them, and 100 million from DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research uh, uh, Projects Agency. Thank you. Mark. And to uh, improve the uh, roadmaps, the technology roadmaps for all the equipment and materials makers. Because the problem was we had about two or three hundred suppliers, and they were they didn't know do we we build because it's such an expensive industry do we build our our machines for the IBM factories or the Motorola factories or the Intel. And this way, we're all going to have the same technology roadmap so all of our equipment people can make the machines for everybody. It's sort of a standardization process. Okay. Everybody saw how to compete for the machines, but it but was all, when we met, went from, let's say, six to eight to 10 millimeter uh, wafers, they would know what year we're going to do that to build machines to build that those machines. So that's what Semitech was. And these are the companies that started Semitech back in, down in Austin, Texas, as it turns out, in 1987. Some of these companies aren't around anymore, like Rockwell is not in the chip business anymore. Uh, Digital Equipment Compact is now part of Hewlett-Packard, and uh, uh, AT&T is not in any of this business. They're in the content business now. So, but the con- we had to get $100 million from the, from the Congress, and that's not easy. So we started Semitech Washington Group, which I chair, and um, we set about working for about nine months to get $100 from the Congress. I'd never done that before, to get a lot of money from the Congress. But we had eight or nine cities in eight or nine states bid on putting Semitech, it was kind of a research plum in their state. Florida, Massachusetts, California, Arizona, Texas, et cetera, in their state. the senators were saying, we're not going to vote on this until you tell us what state it's going to be. Well, then we get two Senate votes, right? The Two senators from that state. Everybody else would say, well, they got it and not us. So we couldn't do that. So we wouldn't uh, blink. So then they said, we're not going to give you the money until you tell us who the CEO is because we don't want to give money to some $100 million a year consortium. We don't know who's going to run it. So the SIA presidents, all the company presidents, got together at a meeting and said, okay, who's got one of their best people that's going to run this consortium? I want to give up my best people. They're probably my next CEO. I'm not gonna, and nobody would give up their best person. So I said, well, we do have Dr. Noyce, who's semi-retired. He's no longer run the company. That was Gordon Moore was actually, by then it was, no, it was Gordon Moore was the CEO at the time, Grove was back at the VP, running the manufacturing. So I went to Noyce. I remember the day I went into his office, a little cubicle, which was right next to mine, and I said, Bob, um, we need a person of stature in the industry to be the president of Semitech. Will you do it? He was 57, 58 years old, something like that, I guess 57, and, you know, worth X billion dollars and didn't really, wasn't looking for a day job, you know, a new job. Uh, let this cup pass and so, I, he said, where is it going to be? Because that was a big secret. And only a few of us knew it was going to be in Austin, Texas. I said, Bob, I'm going to tell you, but you can't tell me, because then we'll just get two Senate votes. We're, we're trying to get 20 Senate votes. So we have 10 states in play. That's 20 votes. We'll, we'll, we'll get this passed if we don't tell the city. But I can tell you, because we want you to be the CEO. He didn't even know. He was the CEO, retired CEO of Intel. But he was still working at Intel. He was the vice chairman. So I said, would you do it? And he said, what city? And I said, Austin, Texas. He said, just a minute. He goes back to his credenza, and he brings out an aeronautical man. I, I don't know, what's this about? He flew a helicopter, a jet, and a propeller plane, and la di this was He loved to fly And and he does this then with this, uh, what do you call those things, you know, compass or something. What is this, okay, I'll do it. I said, I'm sorry, you'll have to tell me what the map exercise is about. And he says, well, you know, I have a Cessna Citation that he flies, and Ann and I have a home in, uh, what's the fancy place in, in Colorado? Yeah, Aspen. They have a home in Aspen. He said, and the reason I bought the Cessna was because you can fly from San Jose Airport to Aspen on one tank of gas. And I was finding out if I could fly from Aspen to Austin on one tank of of gas. And I can, so I'll do it. (laughs) But I'm not going to refuel because on the weekends we're going back to Aspen. We're not going to be in Austin on the weekends. Okay. Okay. So, thank God it wasn't Miami Beach or something, you know. We'd have to get a 747 for the guys. So so he said, yes. He said he would do it because he could fly there. But he said, the other thing is, we're asking $100 million, and I don't want to be the mohair industry. And I don't know much about mohair, but apparently during World War I, they had subsidies because all the uniforms and the troops were made out of mohair. And probably to this day, that industry gets some sort of subsidy. He said, so if I'm, chi- I'm going to be the president of this thing and I testify before Congress, I'm going to tell the Congress, after 10 years, cut us off, take the needle out of the arm. If we can't make this a success on our own after 10 years of operation with government doubling the money, we shouldn't be doing this, so I'm out. We're out in ten years, and you tell the the CEOs, "I'll do it because I can fly there with my wife and get out on the weekends." But they got to promise, so they all promise. Okay, ten years we'll cut out the, the subsidy. So, uh, so anyway, we'll get to the rest of this story in a minute. Where's my where's my person here? Okay, uh, so I'm just. Okay, so let's go on to number four. We're not going to do all ten, but but you can do five now. Okay, But they're kind of fun, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So Grove, after we got the Semitech um, money, $100 million, he writes, because Andy likes to have off-ed pieces. He's a writer. Uh, Trade wars, regain leadership by working together. Andy Grove, CEO of Intel, and you can read what he's saying here, but it's pretty much the U.S. electronics industry has been dumped on and Beat up, and we're outsourcing everything, and blah blah blah. Of course, that's what that was thirty years ago. It's much much worse today. All the Apple stuff is made up far east, and all that stuff. But he but he says here we must acknowledge and clearly state with sorry the president that that we have a, a stake in our own industries and national competitiveness, et cetera, et cetera. So it's one of these fly the industrial flag, et cetera, of the United States, which I'm all for from time to time. It's, it's important. And he writes this thing. So that was December 13th, and then I went home for Christmas, Peoria, Illinois, and I went to a meeting January 5th. And I was invited to this meeting, and you have this, if you pick this up at the front door, if you pick this up, that's what we're going to talk about right now. So January 5th, I was invited to meet at Intel headquarters, and... You see on the right, uh, right uh, do I have a memo? I've got the memo here. Yeah. On the right side, you see the list of people. Those are the little people in the meeting. That includes five different Intel vice presidents. I was a manager. At Intel, you're an intern, then you're a manager, then you're a director, then you're a vice president. And there's not a lot of vice presidents at Intel. With manufacturers, it's not like banks, you know, everybody's a vice president. So at manufacturing companies, there's very few, but there were five in this meeting here. And, and, um, so I attended this thing, and the reason they invited me to this meeting was they were we'd gotten dumped out of DRAMs. Now, when you sell a microprocessor to uh, Hewlett Packard, the purchaser says, "Okay, I'll take you know a million chips or whatever they want uh, of your microprocessor, but we need some DRAM because when because you, you need the memory to go with the microprocessor, right? And we want to buy it. Of course, Intel used to make that until the Japanese dumped us out of the DRAM business. Matter of fact, there's only one manufacturer." Of U.S. DRams left in that time, that was Micron Technologies. Five of us got five, six, six or seven got dumped out of the business, including AT&T. Uh, for example, these guys who were not in my part of the world and looked at prices of DRams, they could get the best deal from Toshiba, and so they wanted to do a marketing deal where when our salesman would go in to see a Digital Equipment or an IBM or whomever, uh, uh, Hewlett-Packard, to sell the microprocessor, we would say, well, we've got a great price for a DRAM from Toshiba so we'd get both sales. This is a Japanese company. I just spent four years of my life beating the head out of these people and trying to open their markets, and and they're terrible, terrible people because they have this industrial policy that that discriminates against uh, our, our companies. And then they're having a meeting like, you know, three hours after Andy Grove does this op-ed about we all have to work together as Americans, and they want to do this. And I'm there so that I can explain to members of Congress who I've been working with and begging to help with our trade agreement and U.S. Trade Rep, my gosh, Clayton Yider, explain why we're now going to be marketing Japanese chips in this country for them. The biggest microprocessor company is going to help the Japanese. And I wrote this memo at the end of, well, I went back on a typewriter, I had a PC, but I couldn't figure out probably the floppy disk that day, so I wrote on typewriter as you can see here. And this was please don't make me quit this company memo. Don't make me go to Washington after all we've done to get a hundred million dollars in a trade agreement and sanctions and Japanese has to open up and have me explain my company's not gonna market their products. Are you kidding? So I wrote this memo, and if you read parts of it, you don't have to read it all. But I say, you know, as a follow-up to our DRAM sourcing meeting this morning, I refer you to Andy Groves' New York Times, written less than 30 days ago. It is this it is this theme that Intel and the SIA Semiconductor Industry Association has sounded for the past several years with exceptional results because it has sound logic and political appeal. How can we as a company say these things to a national audience just last month and then quietly walk into Commerce Department this month with plans for sale of Japanese DRAMs through our hard-earned distribution channels? The U.S. government today is our business partner at our instigation. They need us to bolster their relationship with increased sales. They need us to bolster that relationship with increased sales to Japan with Semitech with strategic alliances, like the TI-Intel ASICS deal, which is another deal we did with Texas Instruments. And all the while, our government allies are pressured by METI, by the prime minister, who is going to be in Washington the next week, prime minister of Japan, probably get rid of the sanctions, which he still had on him. And many of our U.S. customers want to gut the fair market value. This is the dumping regime. Ignore market access issues and allow the Laser beam approach of Japan—that's what they call it—to continue a pace. We need to weigh in the benefits of the SIA U.S. government alliance anti-dumping successes we finally had and possible uh, future battles with the trade adversaries against the beneficiaries. Uh, b- benefits of a DRAM alliance. And he calls for a new vision of competitive behavior. That's in the essay. What is new about feeding the sharks? Now you don't use that kind of language very often in company uh, memos because that's. Pretty cheeky, but that's how I felt. So I said, years ago, when I first got to Intel 1983, IBM bought 20% of Intel because we were having problems. And we were their market processor supplier to their PC business. They didn't want us to fail. So they bought 20% of our stock, they also didn't want the Japanese to buy Intel. And that made our success possible. That was creative and effective. Perhaps we should buy 20% of Micron, the only uh, DRAM maker in the US left up in Boise, Idaho stock and announce in, in our angry and short-sighted, to our angry and short-sighted critics that we have done to help Micron double their DRAM production over the next five years. Now that would be a new vision. That would be making a commitment to our ideals and that would embolden our friends in government whose resolve is just now melting. Now I didn't send this to Andy because he wasn't in the meeting. I sent it to all these people including five vice presidents. One of them gave it to Grove. Grove called me up. And he said, I'm so proud of you. I'm convening that group tomorrow at 8 a.m. be there. Five of his vice presidents, including his sales VP and his manufacturing VP. All these people are planning this with Toshiba for months and months, talks I didn't know about. And he said, we're going to buy Micron stock. We're going to sell Micron DRAMs all over the world. We're going to do this deal because of what we've been through the last few, which I just reiterated. And so the headline or the story in the Idaho Statesman, three months later, was Micron Intel signed major deal benefits to Boise and Nation. See, because of that memo. I'm not trying to boast, but, but that was... One of my most proud days, because Andy Grove understood what my colleagues didn't, because they were in the business of selling chips, not in the business of what I was doing. And so, from the essay to the memo to the deal, was very different than the way it was heading. Now, um, maybe one last story, and then is it five o'clock now? Yeah. So we've got thirty minutes to go. So. Uh, one last story, but I'm not going to tell you that one, though. I'll tell you a better story. So, right. Intel, um, 10 years later, remember, Noise 10, 10 years and were out on the subsidy. Well, 1997, so by then, Craig Barrett, who had been head of manufacturing in 1987 probably or something, was the CEO of Intel. And I walked in to see him early in 97 and I said, By the way, we haven't talked about this, but Here's Bob's testimony, Bob Noyce's testimony from 1987. He promised the Senate um, Commerce Committee that we would take this money for 10 years and then we would be independent. And Barrett didn't know about this. He was the chairman of the Semitech board. And there were a dozen companies on Semitech all giving money, adding up to 100 million a year. Intel was the number one giver because we were the biggest company in the business. And he said, He thought about it and he said, if Bob made this promise, who was deceased by then. Bob died in 1990. He died three years later. He said, if Bob made this promise, we'll have to pursue this. So about uh, two weeks later, he was in Austin for a Semitech board meeting. They showed him the testimony. He said, probably most of us around the room didn't know that 10 years ago, our first president here at Semitech promised that 10 years from, from when we got the money, we would stop that and be on our own, in which ensued a huge debate among these CEOs of these companies, about half of whom wanted to keep taking the money, of course, because it's human nature, right? A hundred million is a hundred million is a hundred million, and the Congress loved this program. They loved it. And so, Dr. Barrett, to make a short story here, he's retired in Arizona, and I hope he doesn't hear this. Speech, right? He said, Intel will only continue if we can keep our word, so you decide. Well, if Intel left Semitech, that's that's pretty bad for Semitech. So they, the board agreed to this. And then I started informing key members of Congress and administration, and boy, some members of Congress, really, Read me the Riot Act. You know you're ungrateful, and you should keep taking this money. And everybody's both parties, are for this, etc. But we cut it out, and this is the budget of Sematech, and you can see after actually eight years of the government money, um, it ended, and it's flourishing now, Semitech, and companies from all over the world can join, not just U.S. companies anymore. But we cut the government money out. So with that, I'm, that's just five or six stories. we got a few more, but but uh, you'll have to tune in next time. So with that, I'll open for questions. Okay? Yes, sir. Yes.
0: Mike? Mike. Thanks very much for all this. It's very quite dedication. Why? I think of George Sutherland's victim. Anyone who confuses government and business doesn't know the nature of either one. Yeah. If the government's putting money in and the government's picking winners and losers, then yeah. the government has a stake in it. And if the business is faltering, then we're, there's a disposition this, this of... It was discriminatory. tariffs, "Why did they?" Maybe what I'm not finding is why did they take government money in the first place? Okay.
2: So the, the question is, why would competitive companies or non-competitive companies take government money? Number one, none of the companies got money; they were giving money. They were matching the hundred million. Number two, this was an R and D uh, roadmap uh, company, so. They were meeting, we had to pass the National Cooperative Research and Development Act uh, to allow for uh, antitrust protection of sharing technology roadmaps among these competitive companies. And they, the, the uh, builders of the machines and the materials and the gases that we use to build semiconductors were all involved, they're engineers. What we we're really doing is saying, let's agree on where the technology is going. See, about every three years they go to a, a, a shrink. Which is uh, more chips on a smaller die, and that's that's the alchemy of semiconductors, which is you get more and more po- power, less and less money, right? Because the chips are smaller, and smaller, and more powerful. And you get more and more layers, and on and on and on. So this was really a, a government subsidy and an industry subsidy of simply laying out technology roadmaps so companies could build their products to the roadmap. So it was had nothing to do with competition. It had everything to do with making sure that companies knew which customer to build for, because the companies had all been on different uh, schedules. So Intel maybe would, would go from a from a, a 6 to an 8 inch wafer this year, but IBM two years later, and so the, the these small companies didn't know which customer to build for, that's about the best I can do. But um, the companies were paying money into this, and it had nothing to do with who would buy or sell their products. So I'd be happy to maybe more fully like discuss it. My
0: mistake. I plunged in with a a question. Can we just applaud you for that wonderful talk, first?
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it—it wasn't—and I've actually written essays on this. It—it wasn't. It was a subsidy to a research project to help all the companies know where the industry was going. And the reason it cost so much is we had one fab, which was proving out the wafers. But when the products were made, they were DRAMs, actually, they would dispose of the product. So they would make product to prove out the technology, then they would dispose of the product. So there was no product made that was kept, and everything was pre-competitive in the sense that it was just a technology roadmap. So, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, well, I know. Okay, yeah, so other, other question. Yes, sir?
3: Yeah, um, I understand the financial aspects of uh, the agreement idea Right. Yeah. Um, it seemed like that. I mean, there's a political dynamic, but there's also a financial imperative. Yeah. And that it seemed like it would be in the best interest, from a profit motive, right, to so go on because of the cost associated with having to deal orchestrated with Toshiba instead of the Micro. Micro. Was was
2: there a huge price? Yeah, it's a good question. The question is, from a business point of view, from a profit and loss point of view, was the Toshiba deal better than the Micron deal? Uh, Not having been in the talks between Intel and Toshiba or Intel Micron, and I never was, I assume what was going on was the following. Uh, Toshiba came to Intel and said, we will give you a discount, on the sales price because you're going to have to make a profit yourself. So this can be a profit sharing because Intel, you're selling into all the PC makers, just about 80 90% of the computer makers and mini computers and mainframes and stuff. But you're selling into all the computer makers and we would like to be at that sales table so we can get the sale with you. So it was a joint marketing and sales deal. You always, get a, you always get a discount on that. My guess is that our people went to Micron and said, we'll give you the same deal with the same terms if you'd like to be our partner. They probably went to Toshiba because it was financially much stronger. Micron was always half bankrupt. They just, for a lot of their history, they were just always on the margin. You know, we didn't, lose, we didn't make money this year or last year, but next year we will, etc. And they were much smaller. And so they were, a, they were a dicier bet. And that's why I said in my memo, and buy their stock to have enough money to invest to be a good partner. And that's what we did. But I'm sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure, they would have asked the same terms for Micron. It's just it wasn't a stable partner. But, uh, I wasn't in the negotiations that the best I can do is a government affairs guy, right? I'm just a,
3: a policy guy. Yeah, but it seems that um, you know, the ultimate goal for a corporate Intel at that point, yeah. Now and then, is that to maximize shareholder wealth, right? Um, and I think that um, at, at this point in time, back then when these negotiations were happening, it seems like it was more altruistic in terms
2: of. There's nothing. There's there. no altruism here. No, but yet remember, countries exist, and Japan had a robust policy project to keep us out of their market. And we had spent years and years, by the time I got there, they would have been working on this for several years, to get into that market. And it took a trade agreement. It took trade sanctions against Japan by the President of the United States to get them even buy our products. And so there is a political imperative. It doesn't happen very often, and you don't like it in business. You want to have free markets and free people, etc., and everything should just be a transaction between two willing companies, right? But government was involved, and government was involved because the Japanese government was involved, and they wouldn't, I mean, I believe in laissez-faire, but there's nothing laissez, they don't even know how to spell laissez-faire in Japan, right, it just wasn't, it was industrial policy, capital I, capital P, right? So we had a political ally in our government to open up that market, that was the wrong time to start selling their products to our customers after we had, we had spent a lot of time saying these guys are unfair. So, um, you know, that's what we deal with in government relations is to discuss those. But we are a nation. We have a government and it has to defend us. And if you're, if you're always just, whatever they do to us is fine and not to leave in free markets. The, the world uh, doesn't always work very well for you that way. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Eagles. Eagles, good to see you again.
0: Yeah, good to see you, Michael. Um... Well, you might recall Bob, Bob Noyce was a member of the President's Commission on Industrial Competitiveness under right, right. President Reagan and I had the honor of working as executive director of that, worked with Bob quite a bit. You're describing a period that uh, somewhat resonates with today. It was a big battle between industrial policy types. Mm-hmm. You said, well, America kind of needs to create its own meaty its own kind of government-industry-academic consortium, you know, to drive the economy. We had to deal with protectionists, who said uh, the way to deal with it is massive tariffs, you know, against Japan or Germany. Free enterprise types, uh, you know, the White House. Uh, I constantly had to deal with a lot of free, free market types. Well, types. Jim Baker. You, know, you probably remember. What I remember so. what Baker said, right? So I just want to say that I, I thought that Bob. Uh, was really a very rational voice, and the commission tried to navigate the intersection of the nexus yeah. of these three big debates. Right. And did I think an outstanding job, and also moved forward some terrific ideas: the R&D tax incentives, uh, you know, the collaborative uh, and trust right. exemption, mm-hmm. uh, s- STEM, you know, science and math education is being yeah. important, bringing manufacturing back. Yeah. So uh, you worked for an absolutely terrific, um, terrific guy and a mm-hmm. terrific company, and you right. played a very, very important role in shaping uh, what, in my view, has been the whole framework of competitiveness since the nineteen eighties, and yeah. we continue to debate today. So well, thank you, thank you for providing some insights. Oh, thanks, on that. thanks, Gabriel.
2: uh Questions? Questions? Yeah, yeah, Gary.
3: To what do you associate Grove's um, desire to have uh, Intel's uh, policy reflect maybe some broader um, goals than um, simply what's best for Intel is what's best for its bottom line?
2: Yeah. So the question is, why was Andy Grove um, sort of uh, nationalistic, you might say, for the American economy? I think he and everybody in the industry came to this very, very reluctantly, including Groh. Uh, in those days, this was, I mean, we have a different kind of problem, but it's the same genre with China today. Um, but um, he, he was beginning to intel and He saw year after year after year of China, Japan uh, dumping people out of their business. where they'd sell something for, if it cost you $5 to make a chip, they'd sell it for $2.00. They wrapped $3 around every product. And then after a while you'd go out of business and then they would raise their prices because they have a monopoly. And you can do that if you have a closed market because you can't sell the same stuff back into their market. That's the def- one definition of the two definitions of dumping. And I think he just saw that that wasn't fair. And so we, by the time I got there, we were in a, a we were in a talking war with, with Japan. It became a litigation war with the 301 case. And so he, he very much... Uh, was for fair play, but, but when he saw that, that the, the Japanese were up to sh- shenanigans, as he would say, he wanted to rev up the US side to change that. That's what we did there. Uh, today, the Japanese market is fully open to everything. Uh, in the semiconductor business, I'm not in the auto business, it's probably different, or snow skis or something, but um, yeah. Uh, any other questions? Uh, yes, sir? Uh, you, you mentioned about uh,
3: sanctions imposed by Reagan. I'm, I don't know the sanctions on the semiconductor, semiconductor industry, but I'm aware of the tax quotas that were set for the uh, car auto industry for Japanese imports. Yeah. And my understanding was that there was a sort of a uh, negative effect of it, that instead of improving the quality of the cars that Detroit yeah. was making, uh, instead, Consumers pay for the price uh-huh. because the Japanese could get a market because their cars were in having supply. And so, so my my question here, here is you know that it's one thing to impose the sanctions and to correct the market, or, or, but that yeah. what kind of sanctions you do and what the, what the, what the consequences are? Do you have any opinion?
2: Yeah, excellent question. The question is: uh, Are sanctions counterproductive? And the answer is, depends on who designs them. It's an art. The art of sanctions, number one, it has to be part of a larger trade strategy. They have to be well-timed. You have to have your allies politically lined up. You have to have them well-briefed. And you have to select products that are easily um, replaced by other imports. So my guess, although I'd have to look at the record, in 1987, the 100 million was probably on things, let's say, I don't know, Japanese eel <laughs> or something. I, you know, uh, Things that there are lots of other suppliers in the United States so that no consumers here would even know that those sanctions exist. Like for example, sanctions on red wine from, from Belgium, We could probably shut off all red wine from Belgium, that would hurt Belgium, but probably the French would fill it very easily, et cetera. So it just depends. But the sanctions were not on semiconductors. They were on consumer products and stuff that could be uh, um, exchangeable or interchangeable with other imports and other domestic produced things. So that's the, there's an art to it. You have to know, You go through uh, SIC SIC codes, tariff codes, and uh, trade codes, and you pick out things that have a lot of domestic and foreign stuff. That's what you do. It gets the, and then you decide, you know, whose parliamentary district it is in Japan, and maybe that's the head of the Japanese parliament's uh, farmers, and they get a verb set, you know, they, uh, the farmers in Japan. It's, uh, uh, they're a very powerful lobby, so you pick on stuff like that. So it, it's an art. You can really hurt yourself, or you can really help yourself. And, um, but they're a tool. You know what the president's doing right now with, with China. He's trying to get their attention for a trade agri- uh, negotiation and who kind of deal. He did it with Canada and Mexico. And they all came to the table. So you got to know what you're doing, though. But I, I know the U.S. trade rep, uh, Lighthizer, and I know other people in this administration. They know how to do this. But it's it's unfortunate. You don't want any of it. As business people, you just want markets, like this gentleman was asking you just want markets, you want prices, and you want competition. But um, because everybody has different antitrust laws, different intellectual property, different trade barriers and non-tariff barriers, the world is, uh, is a difficult place, and there is no world government to take care of all this, so governments have to take care of it. Uh, you, and then you.
3: I was curious if, uh, if you could talk about the relationship that uh, Andy Grove had with Bill Gates from a, a business as well as a professional <laughs> right. orientation and the whole Wintel. Type okay,
2: of. so the question is, back then we had the, the, the term Wintel. Anybody know what that is? Windows and Intel, that was the the um, sometimes accused uh, monopoly because what happened was in 83, just as I arrived at Intel, IBM had decided they are going to get in the personal computer business. They were in the mainframe business, but Apple had come out with a PC and we're starting to get the attention of the Big Blue, and Big Blue was very, very big, of course, and made most of the computers. So they wanted to uh, build a personal computer. But they wanted to do something that avoided the Sony Betamax problem. Probably most people in the world don't know, or the world don't know what we're talking about, but there were two types of VCRs. There was a VHS, which was everybody used, except for Sony, used the, the Sony Betamax, which was a smaller cartridge, for movies and that sort of thing but the problem was if, if you took your movies over to somebody's house and they didn't have a sony they weren't inter- you couldn't use them but most people had the standardized VHS and so sony actually went out of that business because they they had a uh, unfriendly or non-compatible design so IBM wanted to have what we call open architecture sony beta was closed architecture Apple had a closed architecture. They had the Motorola chip, and they had their own software, and they weren't going to let anybody second source it. So IBM saw that as a weakness, Steve Jobs, because Steve Jobs loves his stuff, and he didn't want to share it. It's kind of that's a, You got to in, in the technology business, you have to love your stuff, and you want to want to share it. It's you know, it's, it's a multiplier effect, not a not the other way around. So they chose the microprocessor from Intel. And they chose Gates software, except Gates didn't have software as I recall, so he went out and he bought it for $25,000 an operating system from a guy uh, on the coast there, San Luis Obispo or something, um, on the California coast $25,000, which was a lot of money in 1983, I guess. And so put those two, and then they said, Intel, you'll second source your microprocessor, and and uh, that, that way you won't have a monopoly on the chips. So. Because of that, Intel and Microsoft really became the architecture of the PC industry de facto. Or, yeah, de facto. So every quarter, Gates and this gets to your question. He asked about Gates and and Grom. Uh, every quarter, the CEO of Intel would meet with Bill uh, Gates and go through a whole list of all their reports and say, "Here's a problem we have with Microsoft," and usually it was, "We're about ready to launch uh, the." 286 or the 386, are you ready with the software? And even though they're both hard to do, the software guys are always behind that curve and always, you know, iterations of it worse, you only get one chance to make a semiconductor, but they're always, you know, they're, 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 what do you call it? Uh, uh, mistakes in the software. Bugs. Bugs, bugs. thank you. He's for the software, but bugs. So anyway, so they would, a lot of their meetings were about um, aligning our launches so that we don't launch a new, you know, the, the, um, I don't know, the uh, Texas Instruments 386 PC, and then the software isn't there to put in the PC. So they, they talk about that, and um, you know, other things. But I think they had a very cordial relationship, but it was, I think it was, you know, they were difficult dis- discussions because uh, everybody has their own kingdom and and the. You know, they're building this wall, and we're trying to build this dam. And it's just, just different timing. But I was never in those. I was in meetings with Andy and Bill Gates and many other CEOs because they'd come to Washington and lobby, and so I would see them interact. And um, they were, I think they're very respectful and cordial. Gates is a very nice guy to be with. He's a lovely person. And Grove is a brilliant person as well. But had, their styles were completely, completely different. Grove was always teaching the room, and Gates was always taking notes. Uh, and Grove was always going to tell, tell everybody how it all worked and Gates wanted to listen. It was a different style. Yeah, yes, sir. Oh, yeah, Sorry. You had a question back here. Is that helpful? Sure. Yeah. And, and, um, uh,
3: thank you for your presentation, in in the strategizing, um, my question is, did you at any point approach the president directly in, in, in those days and then extrapolating to today? How would you uh, advise in terms of teaching someone to lobby uh, to strategize in the White House for any uh, legislative changes? Uh, what was the question? How would we... Did, 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 did you um, approach the president directly, directly?
2: I heard that part, but what was the second question? Oh, the second? For,
3: for today, how would you uh, teach a, say, a buddy
2: lobbyist okay. to strategize... Okay, okay. okay good, good. Very good. Okay, so... Uh, yes, when I was at Intel, we met with every president from that, those 18 years on more than one occasion. So when you have CEOs from these big companies, they get to see the president. Not all the time, but they get to see him. And so, yes, I've been in many meetings with Clinton and Al Gore when I knew Al Gore when he was in the Senate, actually. And um, uh, so both Bush's and... and um, Reagan, I guess those were the those were most of the presents that I served uh, while they were serving um, on the on the, the per- well. I opened up the talk if you were here with lobbying rules, so I I think they stand today. The one thing I've seen that's happened more and more that I think is really really and I, this was on one of my lessons I didn't get to counterproductive, is counterproductive. Grove used to say, "Don't be clever." We have a lot of lobby shops now. So, for example, the daughter of a friend of mine is a lobbyist for Google, and she's one of their Republican lobbyists. And I will tell you, I really dislike this professionally. To have people on your staff, because you're a Democrat and a known Democrat, used to work for Dianne Feinstein or something, you will always lobby the Senate Democrats. And because you work for Paul Ryan and now you're on our staff, you'll only lobby House Republicans because they'll trust you. And what that does is that uh, solidifies gridlock. And one of my stories that I tell here and I'll tell it here, maybe this might be my last answer, but I'll try to get to this slide here. It's a good story. I think it's yeah, here it is right here number number eight story. So we were trying to get um, an amendment to a trade legislation passed and I think it was probably let's say it was 1990, 92, I don't know, but uh, Bill Thomas from uh, Central Valley of California was a ways and means chairman and That's where the trade bills go and Bob Matsui was the ranking re- Democrat on the trade subcommittee, so he was a big deal in the trade world We have a big plant intel did 6,000 people in Folsom, which is in his district and Bob is a wonderful guy and um, and I was working with him to see if he would put an amendment in on a trade bill, but it was getting nowhere with Chairman Bill Thomas and his staff. So I went to see Bob Winters. Maybe Bob will listen to this video. A great guy. He he always would tell you about three jokes before you get into the meeting. <laughs> a guy walks into the bar. Winters is just a hilarious man, and but he's very smart, very smart guy. And he worked for the chairman in the Ways and Means, and he did the trade stuff. And so I wanted to see him. This is what you do for a living. You go and see. I said, hey. Matsui has an amendment he's caring for us at Intel. The whole industry wants it, not just us, but I'm the lead on it. It was some amendment to the Trade Act of 1975 or whatever it was. And, um, uh, but he's not getting anywhere. What's the problem? And Because Bob and I are friends, he told me what the problem was. He said, the chairman doesn't think Mr. Matsui is very respectful toward him. And so none of those amendments are going to go anywhere. Okay. So I left, my, I left that office and I went to see Bob Matsui, who happened to be in his office over in the Rayburn building. And I asked to see him alone, which is unusual and they don't like that, especially, well, at least I was not of the other sex because they need to have people in there. But I said, I need to see him alone. And he gave me meeting. He said, what's up? And I said, The reason our amendment's not getting anywhere is apparently the chairman doesn't think you have a high regard. I like the chairman. You know what I was talking about. I said, here's what I want you to do, consider doing. I want you to set an appointment to go see the chairman in his office, in the chairman's office, personally, with your amendment on a piece of paper and say, Mr. Chairman, it's so good of you to see me, and I need your help, and I want you to ask for his help. And he's going to ask, on what? And you're going to tell him your amendment. Which, by the way, Bob Winters said, the chairman's fine with this amendment. This has nothing to do with your amendment. And I said, I want you to ask him to help you. Well, but my staff's still working with his staff. Now. We're all congressmen. You know? I said, Bob, we actually want to get this done. Okay. So he made an appointment to see the chairman. And the chairman said, I'd be happy to help you. And he put the amendment. If I was the Republican lobbyist, and Bob Winters told me that, I'd go back and tell people the story. But that wouldn't that wouldn't help me go see Matt because he's a Democrat, and my company just, you know, I wasn't hired to go talk to those dreaded Democrats. A good lobbyist isn't, doesn't have a party. A good lobbyist has a policy, and that's it. So the last story, and then I'll end with this. That's a good story there. So... Two stories, but I'll just do the one about Matsui. That's Jeff Bingaman, senator from New Mexico. Great guy. So in 1992, I ran for the United States Congress down in Silicon Valley. Voters, obviously, demanded I stay in private industry. (laughs) (laughs) But I took took my intel three months sabbatical, and I actually spent about 12 months on this. And you were in charge of the Washington office while this was happening. So I the voters demanded I stay at Intel. So I get back to my Washington office. I've done my three month sabbatical and the primary was over. And there were five there were 15 people in the in the primary. Eight Democrats, two independents, five Republicans, three independents, whatever it was, or a bunch of us. It was it was just a it was quite a menagerie. And so we we, we uh, I got back to my job and I got a call from Bob Matsui. This was <coughs> This was, I guess a couple years after the end of the story I just told you. And, the, and it was his personal assistant. The congressman would like to see you now that you're back in town. I said, okay, when? Now. Oh, okay. So I jumped in the cab and I went up to Rayburn Building. I said, hi, congressman, good to see you. And he asked the staff to leave and closed the door. I'm so disappointed in you. Why? He said, I thought you were a Democrat. <laughs> All these years, I've worked for, with you for 11 years. And now you're a Republican? Who knew? <laughs> it's a true story. I said, Bob, the reason you don't know is because that's not part of my job. You know, I did run for Congress, but I'm back to being Mr. Uh, Vanilla here. You know, I'm not in the party. I'm just the intel guy. I don't know if I can trust you. <laughs> I said, well, you've trusted me for 11 years. And I got you the amendment with Bill Thomas. Or why I didn't say that, but anyway. But my point is, that's what you got to do. You have to be an honest representative of your company. There is, you know, it's, it's like the Supreme Court wears black robes. They don't wear blue or red. You know, it's just, you know, so that's what you have to be. And all these companies think they're so clever to have a Republican lobbyist to talk to Republicans, and you don't get any of the any of the cross stuff that I'm talking about here. You just, you know. And the last story, okay, the last story, because we got one minute left is so in, in um we were working on the get Uruguay around from 86 to 90 to 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 93, yeah, to December of 93. And we had a real problem because they were gonna have a trips agreement which is trade-related intellectual property, a new code in the GATT, which is now WTO, on intellectual property first time, and that was the Uruguay round, which was supposed to last two years, lasted six. Of course, then the Doha round failed, so the, the WTO has, uh, I'll give you a talk about WTO sometime, has real, real f- fundamental problems now because India and China are in, that's the uh, two billion people that don't wanna cooperate with, with so anyway. Um, I had a problem, which was I was on my way to go to Geneva in a couple of weeks and for the final negotiation, and we were worried the TRIPS agreement would allow the copying of computer chips because there was something that said in there, compulsory licensing is permitted. In other words, we can take your patents for national security. And you can just imagine the government of, of Brazil saying, we need your microprocessor patents for national security for Brazil. We need to have our own microprocessor, and the whole company. It's taken by governments, etc. That's worst case. But other Grove, you know, his book is called "Only the Paranoid Survive." And that's, and that's, that's the name of his book, and he said that's how he thought. He was always paranoid. He thinks that, whenever our stock was up, he says something's going to go wrong. You know, this is how this man was, and he escaped Hungary for a reason, right? So anyway, so I wanted to see Jeff Bingham. Now he's a Democrat, of course. I by then a known Republican because I ran for Congress. But we had seven thousand people in New Mexico, so I saw Jeff Bingham and Pete Domenici a lot. They're two different parties. Those are the senators, but I can see them anytime I want because we're the largest employer in New Mexico. And by the way, in Seattle, I have 17,000 people Intel does in i Aviv, uh, sorry, working. Anyway, I went to see him and I said, Jeff, I got a real problem. Mickey Cantor, the U.S. trade rep, won't um, put an exception. You can't compulsory license semiconductors. That was the one phrase I wanted in there. I worked for six years on this and he wasn't biting me because he was going to help the pharmaceutical industry or and one of their intellectuals. And, you know, he can only get one bite of the apple with all the other company countries and all this stuff. So I said, I want you to call Al Gore, because I know your buddies, because they used to be in the Senate together, and ask him to ask Mickey Cantor to protect the semiconductor industry. Hmm. He said, okay. I'm in his office. Just, well, two of us and his chief of staff. He picked up the phone. He dialed a certain number out. He had it there somewhere. Core answers. <laughs> L. Jeff Beaman, I got Maybach in the office here from Intel. Yeah. He needs, you know, he explains that, you know, he explained the whole thing the way I explained. He said, call Mickey and see if we can help the semiconductor guys. That's the kind of relationship you need, that he's going to do that. Right? So, but you you earn that year after year after year of working with these people personally until they trust you, because you give them both sides, because you're honest, because you work like crazy to support uh, your policies, and explain when things fail, you know, all the things. There's a million things you have to do in this business, but in the end, people either trust you or they don't trust you, right? That's why Bob Matsui said, I thought you were a Democrat. That's how much he trusted me, he thought I was on his team. And that's what you need, and that's why this Democrat called another Democrat to help this guy that ran for congress but it wasn't because i ran for congress because i was intel and that's his largest employer and he wants to help his largest employer that's how it works so anyway so there you go thank you very
3: much